the more we understand how the brain works, those participative exercises, they're creating memories that are bonding you. They're creating neural paths that don't go away. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. J.R. Flatter here with my mustachioed friend and co-host, Lucas. Hi, how you doing? How you doing, brother? Took the week off from the gym. Feel pretty good. I was coming down the stairs this morning and like, my legs don't hurt. What's yeah, going on? <laughs> it's like the, the lack of soreness. It's like an alarm bell or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm eager to get back in the gym. I'm going to run a couple times this weekend and then be back in my weights Tuesday with you. Looking forward mm-hmm. to it. So um, we were thinking about, you know, a topic for this session and the idea of the growing importance of emotional intelligence as we dig deeper and deeper into the 21st century. I think what prompted my thoughts on this, I was reading an article in the Marine Corps Gazette. And if you're not a Marine, you probably never heard about the Marine Corps Gazette, but it comes out every month. And it's like the source document of thought leadership for the Marine Corps. I think each service has their own. Naval Proceedings has one. Army has one. Marine Corps Gazette's ours. But it was an entire, probably 3,000-word article on emotional intelligence and how to use it in the 21st century battle space. I thought it was really intriguing that something you and I talk about all the time is now working its way deeper and deeper into all organizations as a necessity. And we were also chatting briefly about this idea of soft skills versus hard skills. And I kind of chafe at the idea that there are separate and distinct necessary skills now. As I was coming up, we thought of soft skills as we get all the hard skills squared away, and then perhaps we'll talk about these warm and fuzzy soft skills. But now you're the voice of of this generation. It's part and parcel of how you think and decide and work. Yeah, I mean, I guess that leads me into the thought that I think maybe there's like a higher baseline on like the minimum amount of technical skills everybody has where it's like those are pretty well taken care of throughout our lives, like interacting with computers and office software and and like just practices that you can easily bring into the office. And then it's like, Oh, but do we get along with this person or do they fit with us? Do they align with our mission? Yeah, it's. I guess it's just easier to find somebody that can do the technical skills. Yeah, but even while I listen to you say that, I'm thinking about, so we're heading into a new year. Obviously, we stop and pause and say, what did we accomplish last year and what do you hope to accomplish in the coming year? And just looking back 12 months, there's a corporation that... It was online entirely. I don't think they had any brick and mortar. They had to be in the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, if not billions of dollars in revenue. 
And I just read today, they're going out of business. One day you're here and one next day you're gone, right? You're the service of choice and then you evaporate. So as a boomer looking at millennials and younger, I'm understanding more and more it's a matter of necessity that you have an allegiance to your continued growth and your continued relevance. And the job you're doing today is very likely not going to be there even five years from now. I mean, look at the software you're using today versus, and by the way, congratulations on your ninth anniversary here. It's hard to believe, right? You've been here nine years already. Look at the software you were using nine years ago. We say all the time Moore's Law is dead, but what do you think? 2X, 3X, 4X? How many generations have you gone through in nine years? The affordances, yeah, in terms of like what you could be using to automate, you know, yeah, you could do the work of three people that when I started, yeah, so definitely. That's interesting because all this technology and what I've spent the last several days doing is what I would call nug work, going in and making sure the right logo is in the right place, wondering, I bet there's a tool out there that would help me do this, that I don't, wouldn't have to do this 20 different times. I was creating a template, like a 30-page template, a branding template that we're all going to use. So it is some sort of automation involved in it. But it's still a lot of nug work. So even this far into the 21st century, you're still going, doing a lot of very technical and cognitive things. Yeah, like it also prompted these ideas. It's like, what is desirable to automate? Like you think, oh, we're doing all this paperwork. Maybe it has to do with people like directly like with HR or something. And oh, if we automated this, we would save money. But do you want to automate things that, you know, some things require human intervention and oversight and care and you know this emotional intelligence that we're talking about so it's not always desirable to say like everything should be automated you're spot on one of my biggest lessons of this year past was i've been in business 22 years but i had never learned how to sell and i read a book called fanatical prospecting and um, we hired a sales lead She's been on the team just at a year right now. So very beginning of this year, she came on the team and now has been on almost a year. Gosh, time flies. And I think your brother's been telling me for years, you got to sell analog before you can sell digitally. You got to learn how, what does the process look like human to human and then digitize it. But as always, being the boomer that I am, I pushed back and said, no, this is the 21st century. I'm going to digitize my sales process. And our sales lead, like day one, is like, stop focusing on the website. Stop focusing on social media marketing. Let's go old school. And I pushed back on that. But after reading the book and working with her for close to a year, it is rather analog, but from a place of emotional intelligence, human to human. Eventually, it comes down to one of the things I learned in sales, and this is going to sound like a blinding flash of the obvious. We decide to purchase emotionally, and then we rationalize it, that we really needed that or it was going to serve us. But in, inside, 
we're deciding emotionally. So whether or not you use our coaching services or whether or not you use our coaching education, I have to make an emotional connection with you and you have to make an emotional connection with me and then you'll decide. Just thinking about tools in general and how, you know, you can gain capabilities from tools, but it's not going to change like what message you're communicating. So yeah. And like, like we were kind of getting out before you can amplify it with automation. Oh, I want to reach more people, but you're not necessarily going to hone the message on like what exactly you want to get across. And then maybe those like, Oh, we provide these five things like bullet points. Those are the capabilities that you're advertising. But like you're saying, it's what are, what emotional decision do those bullet points bolster, you know? So it is marketing's totally in that emotionally intelligent, like communication world. Yeah, you've just struck on, and this is probably going back more than a year, but when we met our, our friend Brian Elwood, and he came on podcast probably a year and a half ago, talking about nailing your niche, as our British friends say. We tend to say niche in America. It's all about becoming one of one. What are you delivering? What's your quantifiable end result? Now, you're the only one in the world doing it. That's how you break through. And if you're trying to sell to all 8 billion of us walking the planet, you're not going to sell to anyone. And so that's what the message I took away from his book is how to become one of one. So you and I are going through rebranding. You've got a new job, a new role. It's all part of our continued growth here. And it's all about identifying what is that voice, that human-to-human connection that we're trying to make. Otherwise, you can't break through you're trying to talk to 8 billion people. And even like going back to the Marine Corps example, it's like, I think, I mean, you have communications protocols like, oh, let's use, what is it called? The NATO alphabet or military time and things that make communication run smoother. But it's like now we can start asking like, how is the person, you know, how might they feel if you say this at this particular time, you know? Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think back to my own days, my early days of serving as a drill instructor. And the outside world looking in would think, you know, it's three months of yelling and screaming and push-ups and what you you have me doing again, which are mountain climbers. <laughs> push-ups, mountain climbers, sit-ups, again, push-ups, mountain climbers, sit-ups, again. But it's not. Actually, the Marine Corps breaks recruit training into three phases. And I didn't understand this while I was a drill instructor, but looking back, I see it was very purposeful, three phases of maturation from what kind of power are you choosing to use? And in the early days, and especially in the early hours, it's very coercive. You're going to do what I tell you to do immediately. And then you do that for a month or so. And two things happen. One, it starts to lose its impact if you continue on that path, quickly lose their attention and lose control. So it begins to mature to a more participative, I'm doing this because I want to do it. And I know it's going to fulfill my role. And that's second phase. And the third phase, looking back, I realized there's a lot of emotional intelligence going on there. 
we began to talk about after boot camp and what it was going to feel like to be a Marine in the fleet, as we say, out doing your job and your mission. And the, diff- the kind of power that you used through those three phases was completely different. By the end, and you know, again, as an outsider looking in, you might think that Marine Corps leads through this very coercive style, but it's not. It's a very participative style to the point of decision. And then once the decision's made, you've had your chance to participate in the decision. And now you go execute with absolute enthusiasm. Apologize for getting on that Marine Corps soapbox, but. No, I mean, you talk about. me out of the club, but I didn't do it once in a while. (laughs) Talk about like a culture that's pervasive and, you know, identifiable and prevalent over time. Well, you know, one of the topics that you and I talk about when we talk about culture and emotional intelligence is becoming an employer of choice and not to poke my sister's services in the eye, but there's only two services that are making their recruiting goals. The space force, because they have such a small force that they can handpick everyone and congratulations to them for that. And the Marine Corps, because people come to the Marine Corps for a calling and a purpose, not for the education or the compelling purposes you might come join a military service. If you want to be an employer of choice, and again, going back to your break through with your voice, you got to make sure that the voice you have is the voice that's going to be compelling and make you an employer of choice. And I think um, also there are certain things that we kind of take for granted that are like mechanics that kind of build these emotional connections, like, you know, exercising together, saying things in synchronicity, like seeing together, like things that you kind of think, oh, like, you know, that's a no brainer, but people do it in, in worship settings and in, you know, military organizations, little kids at school. It's things that like they lead towards this emotional intelligence and this kind of like feeling of connection, but they're almost like, disregarded now like oh that's that's how they used to do things (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah but i think the further we go down this path and the more we understand how the brain works those rehearsals and those participative exercises they're creating memories that are bonding you they're creating neural paths that don't go away i'm coaching someone right now who's applying for a promotion in our next two coaching sessions, unless something else pops up, as always, as the coach, I come into the room with an empty chalkboard and an empty table, depending on what she wants to bring in the room. But we intend to focus on mock interviews and role play. You, know, you mentioned worship service in the military. I remember my days learning patrolling, which is a fundamental skill of uh, military service and practicing and rehearsing and wondering why we were doing that, not knowing that just a simple exercise of a mock departure from the line of effort and all of us getting into our positions, we're creating those neural paths and muscle memories that were going to be with us on the actual mission. So that's ingrained in me now that I'm a coach to create those opportunities to get that muscle memory and get that neural memory and it'll stay with her when she goes into the actual interview. 
it won't be the first time she's strung those words together in a sentence and in a paragraph. We will have rehearsed them, emotional over the technical. As I'm coaching her through this, being careful not to get too much of a mentorship hat on, come up to the edge of that line a few times, asking her, who do you need to make connections with that are going to increase the likelihood you get the, the job? Because you want to be known as a human being to them. If you're a name on a resume and they don't know who you are, the likelihood of you getting that position is pretty low. And so who, what can she do to become a human? We call it a, put a face to a name oftentimes. But really, you know, when I see you and I see your, your mood and I see your posture and your enthusiasm, it's entirely different than when I'm reading Lucas Flatter on a resume. Again, going back to EQ, emotional intelligence. Yeah, I guess, and it's also, you can be very emotionally intelligent and maybe you come across well in person and in video, but then sometimes you have to translate those back to technical, like how do I convey that in a resume? Like, how do I take all this that I've learned about our customer and convey it in like a two sentence copy, you know? Yeah. I think about that a lot. So I come from a very technical background, very blue collar background, school trained diesel mechanic, school trained welder, those kind of trades. I don't do those anymore. I still kind of remember how to do them. Kind of like I know how to do multivariate regression analysis from a master's degree. But the primary thing it you've still got that that neural paths and those muscle memories. I think about it a lot, and I had a ratchet in my hand the other day and how nice that felt to be turning a wrench again and brings back a lot of good memories. So you never entirely get away from the technical and the cognitive. And you know, one of the things, one of the ways I measure whether I've had a successful day or a successful year is how much time did I spend in any of those three? And depending on what my role is, depending on what my objectives are for the year, what my key results are for any given quarter would be how much I want to spend in each of those. And these last few days doing this nug work, this very technical work, very necessary in the configuration of the team and our roles and responsibilities, I'm the right person to do that template. And so the two days or three days that I dedicated to it, it's a very slow time of year anyway. So it's very rather, rather relaxing to be able to go back and do that. But I know beginning of the year, I get to get back into the EQ, get away from the technical. And I have a team, we have a team and you're part of that contributions, technical, cognitive, and emotional. And whether you realize it or not, you're making those same decisions minute by minute and day by day. The people that you work with and the people that you work for are helping you make those decisions. Nonetheless, you're making them. I guess and I, I kind of wanted to talk about, um, I think we used to have an example like, selling the sizzle instead of selling the steak and thinking about applying that to you know our experiences over the last year it's like okay you 
go to the gym to build up muscle. Like the steak, you know, the the practical benefit is that you get stronger, you know, you're healthier. But then the emotional differences, it's sometimes harder to even predict what those might be until you experience it. Do you have an example? I'm sure you do in the back of your mind what you're talking about. Yeah, I guess just generally um, for the working out thing, I think that the physical health is one thing, but then I think maybe the more subtle effect is how you feel more confident and maybe you feel more capable because you are more strong physically. Oh, yeah. It's one of the things that when you don't work out for a while, you forget what it felt like. And even now, there were times in my life where I felt like I was floating, doing a sub-six mile, mile after mile. I don't do that anymore, but it still feels amazing to get out there. And you forget how well that feels. If you don't engage your emotional intelligence for a while, you just hunker down and technical and cognitive. And then you have a moment of pure, unadulterated leadership where it was 100% emotional between you and another human being. You're like, dang, that felt good. Felt good to be able to provide that and be part of that. So again, going back to the need for soft versus hard, as human beings, I think we're instinctively comfortable in the tactical and the cognitive. They provide immediate reward. You could see right there in front of you, you might be physically tired and you could see the results of your work. But in emotional intelligence, you might not know for your entire life that you changed the path of someone's life or they made a monumental achievement because of your engagement with them. I was just thinking about one of the case studies in our deck. It's called EQ is BS. It was a quote from someone in our coaching world. It was a long story leading up to us all engaging in executive coaching on our leadership team here myself included. And so uh, this person was engaged in coaching with one of our best coaches and was getting nowhere and couldn't or wouldn't. We always talk about willingness versus ability. Couldn't or wouldn't get their head around the fact that simply doing their job wasn't enough in the role they were in. They were in an executive position that required leadership strategic thought, yet every day was mired in technical and cognitive and just couldn't get their head around the idea that we needed more. And that's where the quote came from. This EQ stuff is all a bunch of BS. I'm making money. I'm making my numbers. Why should any of that matter? And so we, we do a lot of psychometric tests here. And they're valuable, but to some extent, they're an interesting sidebar. We're getting ready to do an offsite, a, whole, a full day offsite with a customer looking at a 360 assessment feedback. And they tell you a lot. They tell you, and they're all, they're entirely perception based. How do you perceive yourself? And that's how you respond to the questions. And how does the world perceive you? And that's how your responders answer the questions about you and your leadership. So I guess it's a really nice snapshot of how you perceive yourself and how the world perceives you. And the way this particular tool is set up, the upper left corner, it's a circle and a quadrant. 
The upper left corner is a story about your emotional intelligence. It's the questions that are asked about your ability to connect, your willingness to connect, and people-oriented or task-oriented. And this particular person, I suspect, I, did, I never looked at their circle. I suspect they were largely devoid of emotional intelligence in that quadrant. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is kind of unspoken in a lot of cases, but it's like X person could be 30% less effective at an example role, but their presence and personality and like what they bring to the team is so valuable that that efficiency doesn't matter. And you could think of somebody that's so excellent at their job that you excuse a lot of, you know, social faux pas or, you know, uncomfortableness. So it's like there is a quantifiable, like, how much emotional awareness or intelligence does this person have versus how effective they are. And if I forgo all emotional intelligence, I better be really effective at my actual technical tasks. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's so relevant. And it's one of the questions I ask myself again and again and again as I'm evaluating someone. Is it an annoyance or is it existential? And I distinctly remember having a termination conversation with someone probably 15 years ago and telling this person I was ashamed of myself for having not terminated them months ago because they were crucial to the success of that particular project. And so I excused, I made principal accommodations that I never should have made. And by the way, as tragic as having to terminate someone is, it rarely, if ever, hurts as bad as you think it's going to hurt. And it's something that is, but you have to be very purposeful and thoughtful about. And so I asked myself for days on end, is this an existential principle violation or is it an annoyance? Because one of the things I've discovered, perhaps you have as well, if you want excellence from someone, almost every one of us has some eccentricities that are annoying. And you smile every time I say that, so I, I, I know <laughs> I that annoy you. But you have to ask, can I, am I willing to accept the annoyances, the eccentricities to receive the excellence? And in this case, I'd convinced myself it was the right thing to do and sort of the good of the team. And yeah, it was annoying. But finally, one afternoon, just crossed a line that was absolutely unfathomable and irreversible. And he was terminated very soon thereafter. Not sure how I got off on that tangent. But. <laughs> well, we're trying to find a happy note to end it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, let's do that. You always have a way of doing that. So, um, Yeah, I mean, I guess just generally a thought I always have about this is, and going back to like the technical automating things, that you can automate things and it'll speed you up and you can go faster, but... You might be sprinting into a brick wall or, or, you know, doing something very quickly, but making a mistake very quickly and over and over again. So like we said, it is important to consider the, you know, the basics of your messaging and things like that before you try to use tools to amplify it. Yeah, and I will finish on a, a bright note, I hope. 
of all of the kinds of intelligence you could use, if you want to maximize your contribution exponentially, technical and cognitive are at best marginal or, or multiplicative, like one X or two X. But you want to get 10 to the second, 10 to the third, 10 to the fourth effects, you have to use emotional intelligence and build teams and connect people human to human. No matter how beautiful a bead I can weld or how well I can rebuild an engine, those technical abilities are only going to take me so far, take our organization so far. And I came to the realization that being a leader of those people or doing a particular task, that was really the exponential contribution that I could make to the team and to, and to the world. This global court that you and I have, that's an exponential impact through emotional intelligence. So anybody who's listening or watching, you want to figure out how to maximize your impact to the world, to your family, to your church, to your soccer team. It's going to be through emotional intelligence. All right, my friend, I'm doing a uh, unapologetic plug for a couple of boot camps we have coming up. One of them here in the what we would call the Americas. It's going to be on Eastern Time Zone in the U.S. It's the fifth through the eighth of February. It'll be eight a.m. to five p.m. We get out a little early uh, the last day because we'll have a working lunch. We get out at two o'clock on the on the fourth day, and then we have a boot camp in APAC, Asia Pacific, on the twenty-first through the twenty-fifth of February. So two in the month of February, depending on where you are in the world, and then that one will be on GMT plus ten. So it's a split between Tokyo and Sydney, that part of the world. Asia Pacific. And uh, we really focused on, I think we talked about in a recent podcast, DOD Cool, inviting people to use their cool funding, credentialing opportunities online. But also a reminder of our military spouse scholarships. Anybody who's a military spouse is tuition free to any of those boot camps. So look forward to engaging with those two cohorts in the month of February. Yeah, if you want to register for either of those bootcamps or if you want any information about any of our programs, number 2RL, 2RomeoLima, at FlatterInc.com, FlatterIncorporated.com. Thanks. All right, see you all later. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.